afternoon and turn to the book of Luke. Excuse me, try not Luke, try Romans. We say we got done with Romans awfully fast, didn't we? Well, we're not quite done with Romans. We're up to chapter 4, verse 9. Romans chapter 4. And uh, about put myself to sleep there for a minute. Pretty bad when the preacher goes to sleep while he's preaching. Ever tell you about the time I was uh, teaching summer school? I was uh, working at uh, Pepsi-Cola for, at nights from 10 o'clock to 6 o'clock at night. And uh, then at 8 o'clock the next morning, I would go down to the grade school and do some special tutoring and teaching from 8 until noon. Sometimes you have to do these things, you know. And I was doing flashcards with them, you know. And they're going, and I'm going like this. You know, I'm doing all I can to stay awake. Third and fourth graders. Now you think I'd be able to stay awake for third and fourth graders, but I was just, I was beat from working all night, and then I go teach math and and uh, on uh, in the morning in summer school, and. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to stay awake. Well, I'll try to stay awake, if you will. And so let's go into Romans chapter 4, and beginning in verse 9, we're talking about justification by faith. Now, there's a lot of confusion in the world surrounding the matter of salvation and how to get right with God. You know, it's amazing since I think the Bible's crystal clear in this area. And yet there are groups that say, well, yeah, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Others will tell you that they have to, you have to belong to their denomination or their group uh, if you hope to be saved. And still others would say, well, you need to keep the sacraments, the holy ordinances, if you expect to get to heaven. And if you listen to every voice out there, you're going to be in a terrible fix and you'll never know where you stand before God. And all you know is what uh, is that no matter what you did, it was never enough. Well, that seems to be the attitude here of Paul attempting to combat this particular thing in this chapter of Romans. He was just told the Jews that uh, getting right with God is simply a matter of faith. He tells them that salvation does not rest in one's obedience to the law, neither does it rely on one's good works. It tells us that such blessings are uh, such as justification and righteousness and salvation and forgiveness. All these wonderful words, that's all given to us free and clear when we trust Christ as our personal Savior. And after telling the Jews that the law cannot save and that works don't work either, he proceeds then to tell them that circumcision also will not get them to heaven. Well, if the law and our works and circumcision won't get us uh, uh, right with God, then what will? Well, that's the question that Paul answers here in these verses uh, as we look at them this afternoon. Two main truths here, how righteousness is obtained and where the law fails, faith prevails. So let's look first of all at how righteousness is obtained. And I want you to notice first the plan. In verse 9 it says, Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon uncircumcision also? 
For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. I want you to notice, first of all, the confusion. The confusion. Paul anticipated the objections of his Jewish audience and begins to address the issue of circumcision. Now, obviously, the Jewish people attach far more significance to circumcision than we do in our day and time. For them, circumcision had come to be a mark of salvation in a man's life. And for this, it merely, uh, for us, it's merely a medical procedure that's performed a few days after a male child is born. Uh, we do it for uh, hygiene. Uh, the uh, Jews, on the other hand, attach great meaning to this rite of circumcision. And for instance, a certain rabbi wrote this, Our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will ever see hell. Well, uh, this is part of the confusion. A certain Jewish book made the following claim. They said, Abraham sits before the gate of hell and does not allow that any circumcised Israelite should enter there. In other words, they attached their eternal security to this rite of circumcision. Some Jews went so far as to teach that even a man uh, who committed idolatry, God would have uh, to supernaturally remove his circumcision in order that the man go to hell. But the whole point is here that Jews, for the Jews, circumcision was far more important than it really uh, needed to be. It was a point of entrance into living and true relationship with God. They were sincere about it, but they were sincerely wrong. Why did they attach such great meaning to circumcision? Well, in the most intimate and personal manner, the Jew would be reminded of this, his standing with God several times every day. And we see that same kind of mindset active in our world today. Uh, it isn't about circumcision, but you know people attach spiritual significance to rituals like baptism, uh, to communion, uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, or good works. They think all these things are important and necessary to be saved. No, they're not necessary to be saved. They're, uh, as a result, many times as a result of being saved, not to be saved. The bottom line is that people are confused about this matter of salvation and how to obtain righteousness. So we have the clarification. Paul takes steps here now to set the record straight, and he tells us again, without mincing any words, that Abraham was saved by faith alone. It was not works, it was not the law, it was not the rite or ritual of circumcision, it was pure faith. He believed God, it was counted to him for righteousness. And nothing has changed in that particular area. Salvation is by faith for everyone who gets saved. It can come in no other way. Listen, we need to be sure that we're trusting Jesus Christ by faith and through faith alone. Anything else is a re- recipe for disaster. So we have the, the plan for receiving righteousness. Secondly, we have the pattern for receiving righteousness. Verse 10. How was it then reckoned? when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision, not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. <coughs> First of all, again, we have the confusion. There's another point of confusion here. If the righteousness was reckoned to Abraham, did it come before or after he was circumcised? 
Well, this was a matter that needed to be addressed with the Jews. They were pinning their hopes of heaven on the ritual of the flesh. As a result, many Jews were going to die, and they were going to go to hell. And by the way, that hasn't changed. People are still looking for everything under the sun for salvation. But they're going to die, and they're going to go to hell if that's what they're trusting in. The world is confused about this matter. They need to hear the truth from redeemed people, and they need to see the truth lived out in the world by those who claim to know Christ. Paul has an answer for his generation. I wonder, do we have the answer for ours? Well, I believe we do, but are we giving the answer? So then we come to the clarification here. To answer this question, we need to look no farther than the book of Genesis. When we do, it becomes very clear that Abraham was saved at the age of 85. That's told to us in Genesis 15 and verse 6. And yet he wasn't circumcised until he was 99. Uh, Even though the Jews believed that circumcision was required for salvation, the very man they revered so highly was saved long before he was ever circumcised. Now this is a truth that needs to be... I think, drilled into the heads of every child of God. Salvation never has been about what we do. It's always been about who we are. If we belong to the Lord, then we're saved. We're forgiven. We're adopted into the family of God. We're declared righteous. If we have not trusted the Lord by faith, then we're lost, no matter what we do. Now, the whole point of this section is to tell men that salvation cannot be found in the rabbi's knife, the baptismal pool, communion, the church membership, and we could go on and on and on with what people think uh, they, uh, they believe concerning this. Salvation can and will continue to be found only in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Men are still saved by trusting his shed blood and his resurrection from the dead. Nothing else will save. And the point is proven by taking a moment to look at two particular men in the Bible. Excuse me. (coughs) First of all, the thief on the cross. If we go back to Luke chapter 23, well, we won't take time to look at that entire passage, but in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43, the man that trusted Jesus Christ here, that one of the thieves on the cross trusted Christ for his salvation and he was saved. Yet he never went to church. He never sang in the choir. He never witnessed. He never gave in the offering. He never was baptized. This man did nothing but just simply trust Jesus Christ for salvation and he was saved. All the things he never got to do are the things we should all do, but not one of those things will save a man's soul. So you have the thief on the cross. The other one is Judas Iscariot, who we've been talking about uh, in Matthew, but uh, uh, this we can see in John chapter 6. This man lived and walked with Jesus for over three years. He was active in our Lord's ministry. Uh, uh, Jesus himself looked at Judas and said uh, he was a lost sinner. And friends, it isn't about things we do. It's all about who you know. We need to know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. He alone is the door for salvation. So we have, again, the plan, the pattern. And thirdly, we have the proof. The proof. 
We find this in verses 11 and 12. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not, uh, be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps at faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. Now, again, uh, just reading that, you say, what does that mean? You know, uh, you might come across that kind of a portion in your Bible and you say, what does that mean? Uh, that just, you know, it's so uh, confusing. Well, let me ho- hopefully help you here. <laughs> uh, Paul moves from defending his position on salvation through faith to telling the Jews how one demonstrates that he's a possessor of righteousness. And there's two points that Paul makes, and I think they're important, that they must be noted here. One is, circumcision is a sign. The ritual in the flesh was to serve as a reminder to the Jews that they were in a vital relationship with God. And they were to demonstrate the truth of that relationship by walking with Him in faith day by day. Now, if I uh, go down the road here, and I see a sign that says, Minneapolis, 100 miles. I know that sign is not Minneapolis, right? <laughs> you know, sometimes it's kind of confusing. You go down the interstates and you see a sign, and it says a certain name of a town. You say, oh, that town's right here. But when you get to the exit, then it's about 13, 14 miles down the road from there. So just seeing the sign does not mean that you're in Minneapolis, Okay. That's the same, that's same thing is true about circumcision. It was not the relationship, but it was a reminder that they, a Jew belonged to God. So it was a sign. Secondly, it's a seal. A seal is something that's usually placed on a document and tells everyone who looks at it, this is the real deal. Basically, circumcision was meant to serve as a reminder to the Jew that he was supposed to walk in humble submission with the Lord. It was to be an outward symbol of an inward relationship. It is much the same as baptism. Uh, Circumcision only had value as long as it was accompanied by a heart walking in surrender and obedience to the Lord. So it is with all the religious stuff, so it is with all the religious stuff, we do in this life. The only value for us when our hearts are already right with God through salvation, which comes by faith. Now I think uh, that truth can be illustrated uh, also by the wedding ring I wear. It doesn't come off so easy anymore. Uh, Shame on me. But this ring is a symbol of my commitment. I'm really committed to my wife. It can't come off, you know. Um, Uh, When people see it, they know that I'm married. Uh, They can see without even knowing anything else about me, that I'm not a free man. It's a public sign that I belong to another. Now, if perchance my hand gets full of soap and water or something, and it does slide off, uh, do I become single at that point? No. Uh, I'm just as married whether I have the ring on my finger or not then why wear it? Well, I wear it as a symbol, a public symbol of my commitment to my wife. I wear it because I rejoice in the wife of my youth. 
And I want the world to know we are one. Now, just for a moment, suppose some single guy gets the idea, I'm going to put on a wedding band. Does that mean he's married? Does that mean he's married to my wife? No. He would be wearing the symbol of a commitment he never made. If you can see what I'm saying, then you can see the comparison between the illustration and someone who has never been saved, but they go ahead and they get baptized. Uh, They even say the right words so they can become a church member. It doesn't work unless it's done the Lord's way. And so what is the proof of having received righteousness? Well, the proof is it's proven by what we believe. Verse 11. With all that in mind, does the uncircumcised Gentile have a right to call Abraham father? Yes, but only if he has the same kind of faith that Abraham had. It all boils down to what you're trusting in for your salvation. When the Lord Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate asked these uh, those assembled uh, crowds, he asked them this question. He said, what shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? And the crowd responded that day by telling Pilate to crucify him, crucify him. What is your response to that question? What have you done with Jesus? Secondly, it's proven by how we behave. What about the Jew? Does he have a right to claim Abraham as his spiritual father? Again, I believe the answer would be yes, but only if he can demonstrate the same kind of faith that Abraham lived out day by day. And the whole point here is that if you really are walking by faith, then your life is going to show it too. You will prove that you are saved, not by what you say, but by what you do. You see, it must have been a shock for the Jews to hear that Abraham was made right with God by faith before he was even circumcised. After all, he was just a dirty Gentile until he received the rite of circumcision, they believed. What these Jews failed to realize is that before Abraham was circumcised in the flesh, God had already circumcised his heart. And that is the circumcision that really matters, according to Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So how is one justified? How is righteousness obtained? By faith and faith alone. Now you knew that answer already, but I, you know, I had to get to that point. Right? Because we're explaining what the Bible says here. This is what Paul's talking about. Alright? So secondly, where the law fails, faith prevails. Now, we continue to move through this fourth chapter. We have been challenged by the life of Abraham. He was a man who was highly revered by the Jews of Paul's day. And Paul appealed to Abraham's life to teach his readers that salvation was purely the work of God. He's already taught us that works cannot save. We found that in verses 1 through 8. He showed us that circumcision could not save the soul, verses 9 through 12. And now in these verses, Paul is going to reveal to us the truth that keeping the law cannot save the soul either. 
Now, sadly, many in our day seem to think salvation, uh, salvation works according to that principle. Many believe that if they do good things, they avoid bad things, then God is obligated to let them into heaven when they die. You just ask some people, what will get you to heaven? You ask people today, right here in Spooner, Wisconsin, you'll find people answer that same way. You know, if I'm good enough, I think God will let me in. Doesn't work that way. Listen, if you believe that, then you would be believing a false doctrine. The truth of the matter is, nothing you do can save your soul. It is not nor has it ever been about what you do. Salvation has always rested on who you know. Paul wants us to learn the truth that the law is a system of works, while faith is, uh, is a system that works. He wants us to know that we will never be all that we can believe. If that doesn't make sense, then we think about it like this. You can never become by doing all that you can become by believing. Now, he goes on here in verse 13 and talks about the problem with the law. Verse 13 through 15. It says, For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or his, to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, heirs uh, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect, because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Now the key that unlocks the door of understanding concerning these verses is the fact that Paul is referring to a promise that the Lord made to Abraham, and that promise you'll find in Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 through 3. God made a promise He said, uh, I will make thee a great nation, I will bless thee, and so forth. That was found, it's found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now it's basically a threefold promise. He promised to make him the father of a multitude, uh, to give his offspring the land, to bless all nations of the world through him. And the promise boils down to a promise of salvation, points ahead to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ some 2,000 years later. Now, the idea that Paul is trying to get across in this verse is that this promise had nothing to do with the law. In fact, the promise was given 500 years before the law was ever given on Mount Sinai. Paul's point is that the promise and the law are two separate events, must not be confused. And the promise that Abraham received was not based upon his goodness or on his keeping a series of rules. It was based entirely on his faith in God. God did not look at Abraham and say, Well, Abe, you've been a pretty good fellow, and you've done all that I've asked. Because of that, I'm going to bless you. No, that's not the way it worked. In truth, Abraham failed God. He merely uh, was a frail human being, just like the rest of us. And yet he received the promise from the Lord, and it was not based on his goodness. It was based entirely on the goodness of the Lord, and swung on the hinge of faith. Now, if the promises of God do require people uh, to keep the law of God to obtain them, what does that say about the law and about faith? Well, Paul answers that with three uh, uh, really short statements that need to be understood. Number one, it cripples faith. See that in verse 13. 
For the law that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. According to Paul, faith and the law were mutually exclusive. If the promises of God are given out on the merit basis, then faith has no place in our life. You cannot have both at the same time. In other words, if you can get to heaven by keeping the law, then you don't need faith. And yet if faith alone saves does not matter whether you keep the law or not. This is the root of salvation. It all boils down to what a person is trusting to get them to heaven. Now, if you believe that I must do certain things or I must keep certain rules in order to be saved, then I'm relying on the law. And even if I feel I must do certain things in my life to remain saved, I'm still relying upon the law. If I'm trusting things, works and rules to get me to heaven then I've nullified any faith of which I might boast. And yet if I'm trusting faith to save me, then I know that it isn't what I do, but who I know that makes the difference in my salvation. And with that in mind, I want to say that you can try to get to heaven any way you want. You can try to be good and, you can, and get there, or you can try to get there by trusting Jesus. You cannot have it both ways. It's either by the law or by faith. So it cripples faith. Secondly, it cancels promises. Verse 14. Cancels promises. If they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of none effect. If salvation comes by keeping the law, then we do not need the promises of God. So what's the point of believing? If, we, if I can please God by behaving right, then I don't need him to get to heaven. All I need to do is be good. I can get there on my own just by doing what is right. And sadly, your efforts will never work to save your soul. No matter how good we try to be, we cannot keep the law perfectly. It just won't work. Let's suppose I offered you, and don't rush the platform now, but let's say I offered you $100. Hey, but you got to do this. You got to climb up on this building and jump off and fly, uh, flap your arms and fly around the parking lot. Anybody? Anybody back there? You want to try it? You shake your head, no, but I don't see you running up here to get the $100. Well, what if I uh, offer you $1,000? Well, I'm going to have to go talk to my banker now. Or $10,000. i am going to have to mortgage a home I don't have. Let's say, I'm going to give you a half a million dollars if you do this. Anyone want to try it? Of course not. I don't think there would be a person in their right mind here who would say, I'd climb up on, this, on the uh, top of this building uh, for any amount of money, flap my arms, and fly around the parking lot. Why? It won't work. It's impossibility. All you do is be making a mess. And somebody would have to clean it up. Well, so is trying to obtain salvation by keeping the law. No person can keep the law of God 100% of the time. It doesn't matter how hard you try, you cannot do it. The law promises life to those who can keep it, but no one can, uh, uh, so, uh, no one can keep that promise. So that promise is of none effect. It's void doesn't matter what reward may be offered. 
So it cancels the problem. Thirdly, it condemns sinners. Verse 15. Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. That's the third problem with the law. It's, a base, uh, it's the basis of our condemnation before God. Basically, it states the demands of the law are impossible for us to keep. And therefore, the more God demands from us, the more we fail. The more we fail, the greater our guilt. The greater our guilt, the greater God's wrath is against us. In other words, we are in deep, deep trouble because we cannot keep the law. A law that stands in judgment of our sin, that is in our lives. The bottom line, if you're trusting you're being able to keep the law to get you to heaven, you're in a hopeless situation. Now here's the problem with trying to be good enough to get to heaven. James 2.10 says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of it all. And simply stated, if you only break one area of the law of God, then you're guilty of the whole thing. Suppose for an instant you steal something. You must think, well, I've broken the eighth commandment. In Exodus 20 and verse 15, thou shalt not steal. However, a closer look at the Bible reveals the fact that if you have stolen... We have violated the entire word of God. Notice what Jesus said. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang the, all the law and the prophets. Matthew twenty-two thirty-six through 40. Now I remember a time when I broke a window with a rock. All I did was knock a little hole in one corner of the window. I only broke a little part of the window, okay? Don't get on me. Don't look at me that way. I only broke a little corner. But you know what? The whole window had to be replaced. You see, there's no such thing as a little sinner. There's no such thing as a moderate sinner. I'm a moderate sinner. That's like kind of saying like a, a, a woman is just a little bit pregnant. Well, you're not a little bit pregnant. You're either pregnant or not pregnant, ladies. In the final analysis, we need to understand that if we have broken the law of God in just one point, then we're guilty of the, breaking the entire law. God requires nothing less than absolute perfection from you and me. And therefore, we should praise the Lord that salvation doesn't come by keeping the law, but by faith. So that's the problem with the law. Now, notice secondly here the power of faith in verse 16 and 17. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be, uh, might be by grace to the end promise, to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. The power of faith. Paul reveals the other side of the coin, so to speak. He tells us in these two verses that salvation by faith is far superior to the law. Because faith does what the law could never do. Notice, it admits the need for grace. 
We see that here in verse 16. Faith realizes the human inability to keep the law. It realizes that faith must come by the grace of God or it will never happen. You see, grace is the unmerited love and favor of God toward sinners. Since salvation is undeserved, we are sinners. And in based entirely in the grace of God, and totally rules out the idea of working or performing to obtain salvation. Secondly, it assures the soul of salvation. Also in verse 16, the second part. The problem addressed here is one of assurance. If salvation is produced by keeping the law, then no one can ever be sure that they're really saved. Uh, We had some neighbors like this in Indiana. And there are some of those folks not too far from here. They're called the Amish. They don't know if they're going to heaven or not. But they know if they do enough good works, and they kind of have this scale in their head, they think that they have this scale in their head anyway, that God has a scale. And if it all weighs one way, Good to the good, they'll make it. But they never know for sure. There are other religions and other people who believe this kind of thing as well. If salvation is produced by keeping the law, then no one can ever be sure that they're really saved. Is it possible to know for sure that you're saved? I hope you... Realize that you can know for sure. 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may, say it with me, know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. This is very, very clear. It's impossible to be, it's, it is possible to be sure that you're saved. And yet, if I must keep the law, then I'll never know for sure. Now think about this. The Bible tells us that no liars will ever be uh, allowed into heaven. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever told a lie? Well, what does that mean for you? Or does it all hinge on how many lies you've told? I've only told one or two. Or maybe a hundred lies? Will that keep you out of heaven? How about those little white lies? What about stealing? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever cheated on your taxes? Have you ever uh, always been honest with God? The Bible tells us that stealing breaks the law. Well, if that's the case, then how much stealing is enough to keep you out? Is it $5, $10, $100, and look at it from the other side. How much good do you need to do to be sure you're going to be, uh, you're going to be saved? How many good deeds need to be performed? Well, that's a hard question, isn't it? You can't know that. If salvation comes about by the law, then you can never know for sure. Well, praise the Lord. Paul tells us that grace of God makes God's promise of salvation through faith sure. You and I can know. And that's the basic problem uh, faced by people who teach that uh, you can lose your salvation. How do you lose your salvation? You say, is this really relevant? Hey, I'm sure that some of you have encountered some people that say, yeah, I don't know if I'm saved for sure. I was saved, but I'm not saved. Those people are all around us. 
Is it one sin that makes you lose your salvation? Is it ten sins? Do you have to totally renounce Jesus as Savior? Where do you draw the line? Well, in my opinion, people who believe that they are responsible to maintain their salvation are in the same shape as those people that Paul is writing about here. They uh, they felt that their salvation hinged on their being able to keep a certain set of rules or regulations. It's in my opinion that people who really believe that have to keep themselves saved by trusting their works and not Jesus alone. Well, there's a problem in there. How about if you have doubts about your salvation? Salvation comes by grace through faith alone. Then my works have no bearing on my salvation. Sometimes people just, they, they uh, beat themselves up because of sin. And they say, I just never could be good enough for God. You know what? That's true. None of us are ever going to be good enough for God. If I sin, I will be tra- chastened. But I do not lose my salvation because it's not mine to lose. I am kept by the power of God and nothing can change that. You can believe anything you want to believe about this matter. But as for me, I'm going to trust Jesus Christ to get me to heaven. If it's up to me to keep myself in the faith, well, I'm not going to make it. And then thirdly, it allows all who will be saved, who will to be saved. Verse 17. It says there in verse the first part, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead. Paul draws from Genesis 17, verse 5, to make his point here, and he reminds us that God promised to make Abraham the father of many nations, not just to the Jews, since it's by faith, salvation is available to every person in the world. No prerequisites, no additional requirements. God has thrown open the doors, so to speak, of salvation, and invites everyone and anyone to come. If there were restrictions on salvation, then certain people or groups of people would be left out. If if it were just for the rich, then the poor would be left out. If it required an advanced education, then the uneducated would be left out and would go to hell. The point is, salvation is for all people, every walk of life. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for the sins of the world. Everyone who comes to him can be saved. And then fourthly, it acknowledges the power of God to save. The last part of verse 17, who, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth these things, those things which, he, uh, which be not as though they were. Faith works because it rests in the power of God. Paul describes the Lord in two ways. He makes the dead to live. That's what the word quickeneth means, to make alive. Uh, he speaks and, uh, and things which have not existed come into reality. When Abraham placed his faith in God, he was made alive in God, and he received things from God that were impossible from the human standpoint. Remember, he had a, he had a son when he was 100 years old, and his wife was 90. You say impossible. Well, that's what our God can do. And this illustrates... The basic problem with the law. The law cannot change the sinner. It can only, it cannot make him alive. All the law can do is point out our weaknesses and remind us that there's going to be judgment. 
And this illustrates the power of faith. Faith saves. Not by goodness, but by the power of the Lord. Now, what does this mean for us this afternoon? Well, first of all, two things, and I'll be done. I'm sure glad I'm a, I'm a Baptist this afternoon, okay? I'm, a, I'm glad for that. I praise the Lord for the Baptist distinctives that set us apart from other religions in the world. And I know that I'm saved, not because of the things I've done, nor by doing uh, uh, anything, and I'm not saved for, because I'm a Baptist. I'm saved this afternoon because of who I am trusting in for my salvation. I'm glad to be a Baptist, but that's not what saved me. We can't earn our way to heaven. The other thing is that we must learn the valuable lesson that it only happens as we trust Christ by faith. Your good works, your good intentions will not save you. However, when your faith is placed in Jesus for salvation, you are declared righteous by God. You are accepted by God. You experience something that the law could never produce. At the moment of salvation, you're given the very life of Christ, and God begins to work changing you from inside out. Keeping the law demands an outward change. But it can never change the heart. Salvation, on the other hand, changes the heart, produces an outward change with little effort on the part of the child of God. I wonder, where is your faith this afternoon? Does it rest in the futility of the law and in doing good, or does it rest in Jesus Christ and His shed blood? Your eternity hinges on your answer. Let's pray.